It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hey everyone, welcome to From the Kitchen Table. I'm Sean Duffy along with my co-host of the podcast, my partner in life, and my wife, Rachel Campos Duffy. Boy, we have a great show today. So we're going to be talking to Mark Hemingway, oh. who wrote an explosive piece in The Federalist. It's been picked up by the Daily Mail. Um, <clears throat> he's become a villain on Twitter. What a brave guy, because he took on Taylor Swift. He wrote an article about um, why he thinks the rise and the popularity and the ubiquity of Taylor Swift is actually a sign of the demise of our society and our civilization. He's taking all kinds of arrows. He's going to break it down and explain why he thinks Taylor is the symbol of of civilizational decline in America. Absolutely. The Swifties are after him. But (laughs) there was a Fox Business debate last night, and we sat down and had a conversation with Will Cain on the Will Cain podcast. It's going to air tomorrow night or Friday morning. And we want to take a snippet of that conversation and share it with you, kind of a, uh, a prelude, uh, a foreshadowing of what's to come, full 50-minute uh, hour conversation with Will. We're going to give you a little bit of that right now. So see that on our podcast. Watch the full thing on the Will Kane podcast tomorrow morning. So check this out. All right. All right. Here we go. Here, I want to, I was going to start with saying what you, how did you, how did you rank the debate participants in the Republican primary debate? But Sean came in unfiltered and tried to I, very naively and like a rookie it. move, wanted to do it before the recording started. And I said, Duffy, no. what are you doing? Give it to me <laughs> raw. All right. Now, tell me yeah. your thoughts. Are we, are we actually doing this podcast right now? Will? This is it, man. You know this is the way it's done. I just okay. Nice guy. All right. So uh, I thought you, you thought you, that we were still in like the break. Yeah, I thought we were just in like hangout mode. But OK, that's fine. I'm going to give it to you, Raw, because I saw one of your tweets and I have a lot of respect yes. for you. I think you're a well thought out man. You're, you're you, you analyze things, overanalyze things, and overanalyze things. Yeah. Um, but I saw your tweet. You said Ron DeSantis won and second place was Doug Burgum. And I'm like, what what debate was Will Kane watching? And, and you and I both. I, I like Doug Burgum. I think he's a nice guy. I think. He's, I mean, he's a great businessman. He's great from North Dakota. I'm a Northern guy myself, so he kind of speaks my language. I, I love kind of the cadence and the niceness of him. But you got to have confidence. You, you, you got to lay your vision out for America with some gusto and slow your conversation down a little bit. Not Mike Pence slow, but slow it down and lay the vision out. And I thought he, he still seemed rattled. And so because I didn't have any yeah. confidence... In, in what he was saying, even though it was smart, but I didn't have confidence in it, I, he fell for me. And I, I, he was my dark horse in the last Wilkin podcast we did after the first debate. And he just, he, he didn't elevate. So uh, I think you're 100% wrong as your number two. It was not uh, Doug Burkham. So I'm just going to give it to you straight. Let's talk about Nikki Haley. I, yeah. I had mm-hmm. Nikki Haley as one of my big losers of the night. Um, and Rachel, you said it last night, and um, you said it again here today, that you thought she was feisty and a winner. Um, I, sh- surprisingly, she came out of debate number one for me as one of the winners. I think her poll numbers went up slightly, and people said she had done well. I didn't see that after the first debate. I don't see it after the second debate for Nikki Haley. But this one was worse for me. I just think mm. that interrupting 
is a diminishing factor on the speaker. And Tim Scott, it's not gender. I don't think this is about her being a woman because I think Tim Scott was worse at it than her last night. And Tim Scott Mm -hmm. diminished himself. Um, For example, Tim Scott had a great challenge to Vivek Ramaswamy about his business dealings in China. And then he never let Vivek squirm on the hook. Or he never let the vague mm-hmm. answer the question. He kept interrupting going, I just want to know. I want to know. It's just a question. He kept doing that. And you couldn't hear Vivek. You couldn't hear Tim Scott. And it made Tim Scott smaller the more he did that. And I thought mm-hmm. Nikki was guilty of the same thing. It comes off as bickering and small, not not strong and big. That's my takeaway from what happened to Nikki Haley last night, Rachel. I think you're right on like, I didn't like the comment when she said, you know, listening to you makes me dumber or she made some comment like that. I thought that was silly. But I do think, look, I mean, she was the only woman on the stage and I I think she she made her presence known. I thought she seemed really smart and informed on a lot of things. I don't agree with her on anything. I wouldn't. It would, it would pain me if she becomes the nominee um, because I do think she's super establishment. The reason I think she's a winner is because I think the donor class is really disappointed in Ron DeSantis. They really had so much high hopes for him, and he's and because he, I, I don't know, you know, he just can't connect with people. His retail politics are really bad, and that's really important. Um, I, I think you know both being you know, on the campaign trail, but also in governing when you have to make deals. Um, but he's just not able to close the deal in the way that he should be able to with all the, the support he's gotten from from very powerful people on the right. And and I think um, the people who want someone other than Trump are very powerful people in this country. And they, um, you know, hope Hope is always, you know, eternal for them, you know, springs eternal for them in the hopes of getting rid of Donald Trump. And I think they've put their new hope in, 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 in Nikki Haley, you know, because she seemed, you know, she's a woman. Um, she shares their establishment views probably more authentically even than Ron DeSantis, who seems like he's caught between what he really thinks and the donor money on Ukraine. Um, I do think he's he probably leans closer to Donald Trump on that, but hasn't been able to articulate it because he needs that donor money, which also, to me, speaks to his character, um, because I just think you should just say, say what you think and, and you can never feel bad about how it all ends when you do what you really think. Um, but it, it is right. But I think that she is winning the hearts of the donors. Do I think she's winning the hearts of the base? No. But I do think she's winning the hearts of donors and independents and liberal women. And the the donors are looking at that very favorably. So, Will, Will can I answer that question, too? I, I, I 100% agree with you. We share a brain well. Uh, <laughs> you get it from me, not from Rachel. Maybe you two should get married. <laughs> okay. Here's, here's, here's a, a, couple, a couple points on this. So the first is there are, there are two categories in politics. There is the Bush lane and there's the Donald Trump America first lane. And Nikki Haley falls under the, the George Bush neocon lane that might be 18 to 22 percent of the Republican primary voter. You're never going to get across that threshold, though, above 20 percent where Ron DeSantis, he is an America first candidate. Yeah, you're, you're right. He's had some issues on Ukraine. But I think the donor, if we're talking about the donor class, they understand that they understand there has if you're smart, they understand the party's moved and they might they might like her. They might think that she is you know, got a, a better pathway against Trump than DeSantis. But they but but if they really think about it, she's not going to get a ton more money because she can never win. It'll be Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. 
that, that, that come through the primary. But I want to go back to what you said about it was really frustrating for me as well, Will, when when she kept interrupting. And at some point in the debate, there's there's all this crosstalk and they're all trying to fight on who's going to be recognized. And I expect that to happen. But at one point, you, you got to shut up and you, whoever's getting the floor, you got to let them speak. And you're right. She never let Vivek actually complete thoughts. And for me, it brings me back to liberals because liberals are trying to shut down conservative speech. It's not because they're confident in their own liberal ideology. It's because they're not confident. They can't have an argument. They can't have a debate with a conservative. So instead of debating, they silence you on social media. They try to demonize you into not speaking, you know, what you really believe. And she did the same thing last night. That's exactly right. Be strong, let them speak, and then come back and respond if you can. But just talking over them so no one hears anything for me, that was a sign, and you said this as well, it was a sign of weakness, but also it's even more grating because that's what the left is doing to conservatives right now. And really, for, for me, like I think she's going nowhere. So uh, this, hmm. so let's depart from the debate for just one moment. Sean, you said you, said you think 18 to 22% of the Republican electorate, primary electorate, is still in that Bush neocon vein. Yeah. I think that all three of us, being honest with the audience and with ourselves, are probably more in that populist America first lane. And we would all three Mm -hmm. acknowledge that we have had um, some movement in our own political ideologies over time. And I I know that many of the things that I believe today would not be the things I would have believed 10 years ago. And I think we're all, yeah, and we all are honest about that. But I don't have an answer to my own question, so I'm asking you guys this, you know, with genuine curiosity here. We also all think that Donald Trump stands apart from the field, that he is singular in many ways as a politician. And he has been the crystallizing factor of this populist direction and America first direction of the Republican Party. What I'm curious about is, does that movement have energy outside of Donald Trump? What I mean by that is those that bet on that 18 to 22 percent or that bet on Nikki Haley or um or Tim Scott, are they are they right that without Donald Trump, that's where the Republican electorate and the Republican Party returns? Do you see what I mean? If Donald Trump weren't running really for president, question. if Donald Trump weren't running for president and maybe 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 even I don't want to use DeSantis because I think Rachel's right about DeSantis's own personality limitations that maybe impact this debate. But there was another candidate representing America first. And I think Vivek has his own personality quirkiness as well that impacts this analysis. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if there were a, a cardboard cutout of an America first candidate, right, um, voicing populist points of view, do you think they'd be polling at 60, 70 percent? It's actually something like if you count Trump and DeSantis 80%. and Vivek together, it's like 80 percent, right? But if it yeah. were that cardboard yep. cutout and not Vivek or DeSantis or Trump, do you still think they'd be pulling at 80 percent or the Nikki Haley's and the Tim Scott's would return to defining Republicanism? So to answer your question, well, I think it's a really good one. Uh, I think that Donald Trump has changed the Republican Party, just like Ronald Reagan changed the Republican Party. And Reagan had an impact. He still has an impact today. We saw we saw it last night. The idea, the philosophy, uh, the viewpoint that Republicans have go many of them back to to Reagan, and I think the party's changed. I mean, and again, we'll use Ron DeSantis winning with 
you know, what by the, the 50, what was it, was it 10 points in Florida mm-hmm. in the last election? In every, almost every candidate that's running for Congress, for governor, for Senate, for dog catcher, they've, they've in some way been using the America first ideology and viewpoint to put their constituents, their people first, not this globalism, you know, not the elite's ability to sell more goods, you know, into foreign markets. It's what's best for America and her people. And that's why I think this is going to be long lasting, well beyond Donald Trump. And that's why you see it in, in campaigns all across the country that Donald Trump doesn't touch, that he doesn't know about, but the ideas are there. And before you answer, Rachel, I mean, bef- before you answer, Rachel, do we agree ahead. that the Tea Party, do you think the Tea Party had a lasting effect? So the, 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 I think in many ways the Tea Party actually did have some, some lasting effects, but it's marginal. It's on the edges. Um, I see you shaking your head. Sean was Sean. elected by the Tea Party. Sean, Sean was right. elected no. in the, you know, in that Tea Party sweep that brought in, you know, 90 some Republicans. So Rachel, what makes this different than the Tea Party? I'll let Sean answer that because I think he's closer to it. The Tea Party was really about, you know, debt, right? We're spending too much money. We were what at, we were at healthcare also. $15 trillion of debt at the time. Mm -hmm. Healthcare, right? We're $33 trillion in debt. We're spending massive amounts of money. The Republican Party is gearing up for a shutdown. They can't pass a bill that they agree on. And by the way, it's a very small majority, really hard to do, but they can't agree on what spending cuts they can all get around to go into a shutdown because Democrats won't agree with the Republican bill. But what can they go to a shutdown and argue to the American people that they're right cutting spending? The Tea Party's dead. And if the Tea Party was alive, that probably wouldn't happen. They, they, they probably would be coalescing around a set of numbers. Um, healthcare, Obamacare is still alive and has really talked about it. It came up last night in the debate, but really mm-hmm. they haven't gone after that. But these ideas, the ideas, again, I would have never said, let's build a wall before Donald Trump. Let's, we have to secure the border. I, I felt that, but I, I didn't feel like I could say that. Donald Trump let us all talk about an insecure border. That I, I'm a free trader, Will. I don't believe that we should have tariffs in trade. But when Donald Trump says, yeah, but we don't have any tariffs and people sell goods into our market tariff free, but when we try to sell into their market, they put tariffs on our goods. Is that really free trade? Let's treat them the same way they treat us. And I'm like, huh, that's actually probably pretty smart. We actually probably should do that. And so I think this is this is a uh, this is this is an earthquake shake in the party that stays. Rachel, mm. I'm sorry. That was I, no, no, no. I, I'm oh, I'm so glad you you laid it out that way. And of course, you're closer to it from having you know been a candidate during the Tea Party you know revolution. Uh, I, so first of all, I think Donald Trump's influence, and it's hard for us to appreciate because as Americans, we're so. Uh, we just think about America, right? And that's sort of like the American mindset. But I, you know, I grew up all over the world. I'm a military brat. I have a lot of connections all over the world in, in that regard. And this is global. I mean, uh, you see, you know, Mille is probably going to win in, in Argentina. Um, Bolsonaro's impact, you know, he was ousted, you know, pr- probably, you know, through big CIA. tech and, and with the help of our CIA. But, um, you know, he's, he's a Brazil first person. You have Santiago Amascal, um, gaining ground in Spain. Um, you have Hungary, you have other, um, movements and they are all, if you talk to that, those people, if you look at their social media, they're looking at Donald Trump. They call themselves the Donald Trump of Argentina or the Dar- Donald Trump of Spain or or Brazil or wherever. And so this is a, a, a globalist a reaction to what uh, this this globalist movement and and Donald Trump is the head of it, not just in America, but he's that he's considered the face and the head of it um, globally. And it's so really I good think point. it's it's. 
it, you know, it's really fascinating um, when you get outside and look at his influence. He is the most famous man in the world, in the world right now. And Democrats are trying to decide who our candidate is. I mean, I get frustrated because I, I mean, I work for this network. I love my network. They, they've been they've been good to us. I'm glad we have this debate. It's important to air out these ideas. Um, but in many ways, the primary is over. And he, and, you know, everyone talks about the, the elephant that wasn't in the room. And that, of course, was Donald Trump. And we have a huge um, <clears throat> we have a huge number of Republicans who are voting for him for these ideas. Some of it is revenge vote. Some people are, you know, are really still very angry about what happened in the 2020 election. They don't feel like it was on the up and up. Um, and, and, and it's obvious from the Hunter Biden laptop on um, that, that, that story alone would have changed the election in, in 2020. And then you have people who are just upset at what's happening, you know, right now that the persecution of Donald Trump um, reminds them of the persecution of people who, who questioned that election in January 6th. It reminds them of all the different um, tiers of justice that we have, where we have, you know, if you're the president's son, you can, you you know, you can have an illegal gun and, and you can have shell companies and you can do all this kind of stuff. Um, if you're uh, if you're the right color and you're looting, you're going to get away with it. Um, you know, th- there's there's something very fundamental happening. And I think this is a. Uh, supporting Donald Trump is a a quiet way that you can protest uh, without necessarily having to put a a, a Donald Trump hat, hat on. Um, you can tell a well. I really like the point about, about what's going on across. I really like the point about what's going on across the globe. It, it does suggest this isn't a flash in the pan moment. That this is a much larger and longer lasting movement um, than just one figure, one guy in Donald Trump. We'll have more of this conversation after this. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then Every Life is your solution. Every Life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. For the rest of this conversation, go to the Will Kane podcast. And now for our conversation with the very brave Mark Hemingway from The Federalist. So, Mark, you wrote an article that is getting a lot of attention. Um, the title of it is Taylor Swift's popularity is a sign of societal decline. Um, so before we we go into, you know, your thesis on this, and I think it's fascinating. Let's first establish because you've written for MTV.com. You know a lot about music. You're not just some, you know, dad writing about Taylor Swift and your thoughts. You actually have a background in music. And I think it's important that we kind of you at least lay that out a little bit before. Yeah, I was a hack indie rock musician back in the day. I had some success at it. I played all the big clubs in D.C. I, you know, my high school band opened for The Offspring. I mean, I did a whole bunch of stuff in music for a long time. A lot of friends that worked in the industry, a lot of friends that to this day are still, you know, 
music producers and other things of, of note. Um, this, the, you know, I, I know a lot about music, yes. And in addition to my writing about politics, I kind of have an avocation as a geek clean. So, yeah, I don't take this stuff lightly. It wasn't like something I tossed off on the side. I've been thinking about it a long time. Right. You're not just yeah. sounding off here. Yeah. You have some background. So yes. let's talk about societal decline as it relates to Taylor Swift. Unpack that for us. Give us your your thoughts and thesis on Taylor Swift and what it means for America. Well, first off, I just want to be clear about something. What is that? My article is primarily focused on music. You know, obviously, when you're dealing with a pop star of the caliber and popularity of Taylor Swift, you know, there's going to be some baggage involved, right? So you know, she exists <laughs> in this larger cultural context, and there are some asides in there about feminism and things like that. But the bulk of my argument was, you know, strictly about music, um, you know, which boils down to kind of two things. One is that her music is actually incredibly, if, if you're like attuned to the actual like mechanics of the music, it's incredibly repetitive. She uses the same exact chord changes over and over and over again. Um, you know, it's got different window dressing because the production's different or whatever it is. But, you know, once you're sort of attuned to that, you just keep hearing the same song from Taylor Swift over and over again. You know, I, I guess to some extent, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But, you know, if you go back and you listen to, and I talked about this, you know, the Beatles catalog or even just pop music in the 80s, what was like, you know, a, a more of a dominant cultural force in some ways, there's a lot more variety in terms of like what, you know, listeners are conditioned to hear. Um, you know, and I think that that's kind of dumbing us down. You know, if you only hear, you know, a one, five, six, four chord change every time they turn on the radio, you just learn to like not appreciate music and kind of like grow culturally. So that's the music component. Then there's kind of the lyrical component, of it, um, which is that overwhelmingly Taylor Swift songs are kind of self-obsessed. There's like so many bad breakup songs about like things that people have done to her rather than any sort of like, you know, introspection. You know, Bob Dylan doesn't write a whole lot of songs about, you know, how everyone else has done him wrong, you know. Um, you know, the great artists, I think, are ones that really force us to, like, examine our own mistakes and our own condition. And so much about Taylor Swift, you know, is, is this, like, I don't know, this sort of shallow female empowerment thing where, you know, the world is out to get her just by virtue of the fact that she's a young woman. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. And, you know, that just feeds into the larger drama of her own personal life and all her celebrity relationships and stuff like that, you know. Um, I didn't realize until after I read the article that one of the songs I wrote about extensively was about a political Jake Gyllenhaal for crying out loud. It's, it's, <laughs> just, it's just a lot to handle. <laughs> yeah, her love life um, has not been very successful. Maybe she'll have more luck now with with this new football player that she's um, that she's Travis Kelsey that she's apparently dating. Um, but let's talk about that because you say that her her lyrics come from this sort of me generation, that this started out in the 70s where people started, you know, to talk about me and and separate themselves, say, from their community, and it became more about them, and she's sort of the fruition of this. So is is she moving girl culture, if you will, I'm going to use that term, girl culture, female culture, feminism, into this narcissism, or is she just reflecting the narcissism that is part of pop culture? Yeah, I mean, I think the culture was kind of already there, they just need kind of an avatar, as it were, to rise up and mm -hmm. seize that mantle, um, you know, which is fine. I mean, I, you know, the pop music is going to reflect popular taste. You know, it's, it's kind of you can be a mirror back to us, the listeners, to some extent. You know, I mean, I think the great but I think the really great pop artists, you know, 
Bob Dylan, of course, is like the pinnacle. You know, he's won a Nobel Prize for literature and probably one of the few deserving winners of that prize in recent years. Um, or even just, you know, lesser artists, you know, I don't know, Prince or Sting or something like that, are people that have this artistic vision that takes, I think, people to a different place rather than just kind of reflecting back to them the values that are being imposed on them by other cultural forces. And so I, I don't think that she's necessarily... Uh, breaking any new ground there and and for an artist of her caliber to be that popular and to also just kind of be that shallow uh again like i said it's the thing about society mm-hmm. decline. we used to like venerate these artists that forced us into this sort of new artistic visions and being you know ways of thinking about things you know for good or for ill you know sometimes those new artistic visions were always great um but um you know it was at least pushing us in a different direction and making us reevaluate things and i don't think Taylor so Mark, i'm doing that at all Mark, I, I, can't, I can't sing, I can't dance, and I can't play an instrument, but I do like music. I, I do like listening to music. And so I wonder, you know, I, music touches the, the human heart and the soul and it moves us, um, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever genre we like listening to. And you're talking about the lyrics and um, the, the, the music itself is being dumbed down. I wonder if there's a correlation between that and this, you know, the, the, what's happened on social media. I mean, you watch a 10 second video on TikTok or on Instagram and it's really short. And so people can't sit down and, and, and read a book or a long article. And mm-hmm. so I wonder if there's this now thing that happens that like just I, I got to have the same. I, I don't have a, the same range and reach and interest in different music um, that kind of inspires me. I just want this same repetitive thing over and over again is is there a crossover is my i guess my question into what's happening on the social media give it to me quick and if not i'm gonna scroll to something else i think it's very observant and i think that's kind of exactly right um that, that plays a huge factor in like what's happening you know when we were growing up you know from we get into the get off my lawn phase of this <laughs> you had to listen to albums you know you were buying albums and, yeah you know, very often you buy an album that had you know anywhere from like nine to 14 tracks or something like that and you wouldn't like all you know, but you know what, because you paid, you know, $18 or whatever for that CD, you know, um, you, you know, you would listen to the whole album, you know, multiple times. And, you know, after you listen to something multiple times, you learn that, that, you know, that third song on the, you know, that you, you really didn't like, um, after you listened to a few times, it grew on you and you realized there was more going on there than you heard at first pass. And you learned to sort of appreciate these things. You know, my kids are primarily hooked up to Spotify and this like drives me insane. And I actually try and take active measures to get them out of their comfort zone musically. Mm-hmm. 3000 vinyl LPs in my house have like, you know, like forced them to listen to this. But yeah, if, if you're not like forced to listen to albums, um, you know, then you have everything at your disposal in terms of what you listen to, you know, of course you know people are going to go straight for the ear candy they're going to straight for like the shallow stuff that makes you immediately feel good that has a chorus that kicks in five seconds into the song um and and uh, and yeah that's a reflection of the broader sort of societal you know social media thing where it's it's all dopamine hits all the time and it's affecting music as well so let's talk a little bit about your daughters because what you have done in taking on Taylor Swift in this way, I don't know if you know what you swatted before you actually published this on The Federalist. I encourage everyone to go to The Federalist and 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 read the whole article. It's very good. Taylor Swift's popularity is a sign of societal decline. Um, so I once was on Fox and Friends and said something about Jay-Z. Um, and I said, you know, was, oh, Jay-Z had said something about Donald Trump. And I said, well, what the hell is, you know, Jay-Z ever done for black people? Well, it wasn't the Jay-Z fans. It was the Beyonce, the 
the Bayhive that came after me. And by the time I left the New York studio and got home to Wisconsin, where I was living at the time, my kids, it had just exploded on the internet and, um, and social media. And my, I walked in the door and my kids said, mom, the whole world hates you. Um, how do you feel now after having written this article about Taylor Swift? And it sort of got a second leg, if you will, because then, you know, Taylor Swift at the, at the football game with the Chiefs football game and, 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 and Travis Kelsey, you got like two hits of this. Um, what's your life been since this article has exploded? And what's your home life with your, with your girls? What is their reaction to it? Uh, you know, that's funny. Um, I'm pretty fortunate in that um, my older daughter has inherited pretty darn sophisticated musical tastes. Like I said, <laughs> so like four Good five. parenting. <laughs> uh, my younger daughter's kind of a little into Taylor Swift, but not like, you know, super into her, whatever. So, you know, she, and she does, and on top of that, because I'm a sane person, I don't have my kids online um, all the time, uh, you know, barely at all. So uh, they aren't subject to this sort of broader mind control experiment that would make them you know, hate me or, or turn them against me in, in that sort of way. As for all the other stuff, I mean, part of the reason why I wrote this article is like, I, I felt like I was going insane. Like, you know, we're all confirmed Gen Xers, right? And so like, right. when we were growing up, like our musical heroes were all very countercultural in sort of a meaningful yes. way, right? You know, the broader establishment, the media and all these other things, and they did not care about, you know, who's for do or black flag or punk bands or anything like that. Things that I like growing up. And the idea now that the number one artist among, you know, young people and other things like that in the New York Times is just writing, you know, piece after piece after piece about how, you know, what a cultural phenomenon and wonderful person she is and whatever. And, and the idea that when I was growing up, I, I would have taken that as a sign of something I should have been inherently suspicious of. And yeah. I would feel like younger people need to be much more suspicious of the things that the culture are forcing on them in a way that, you know, we all had growing up as Gen Xers, especially. Yeah, there's and, no you know, counterculturalism so anymore among the youth. They're, they're just not. Yeah, right. right. Like the counter counterculture has now become the counterculture. I mean, I, I, it's, it's really strange, uh, as, as it were. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to to, to uh, um, unpack all that. But, it, yeah, it's really strange that the New York Times cultural critics have been going and New York New Yorker cultural critics will be going out of their way to, like, heap praise on Taylor Swift about what an important artist she is. She's just not. Um, you know, I, I get why she's popular. And I'm not like, you know, there's a lot of things that can be said about her. She's got an amazing work ethic. She treats her fans extremely well. You know, there's a lot of things that can be said about her that are positive. And, and I instantly say those things, you know, I'll try and say those things. But don't try and tell me the music. Just don't. It's not. We all know it's not. I mean, and like I said in the piece, you know, somebody has to stand up for history yelling, what is this nonsense? And it might as well be someone like me. You're willing to take nonsense. the arrows. <laughs> but it, it comes from a Gen X man who is used to fighting the man. You know, we're not going to take it. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. But I wonder if, you know, you talk about the New York Times and you and you talk about just how compliant these kids are and, and they kind of fall in line with, you know, where the New York Times is at as a, as a music critic, which again, in, in and of itself is odd. And Taylor Swift started as a, uh, you know, in country music, right? And, um, she's made this transition to pop. And she's also made a transition. It seems she was apolitical or didn't express her political views, but now she's come out and been, uh, very progressive in her viewpoints. And I wonder if there's a connection with not just her music, but the politics are very useful for, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the left-wing media, mm -hmm. where they can use Taylor Swift 
and her cultural relevance to push their political agreement on these young young fans of Taylor Swift. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, you know, you you just can't exist at that level in terms of cultural influence anymore without people swarming, you know, making work for the cause as it were. You know, yeah, and there is definitely this monolithic you know, approach to politics among our you know, cultural elites that you know, pushes toward, you know, ever left-leaning, you know, nonsense. I mean, yes, Taylor Swift is doing big book registration drives at her you know, massive world tour or whatever. I mean, like, they, you know, they can't leave alone. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember this was like five, six years ago or whatever, there was this massive campaign online to force Taylor Swift to say something about Donald Trump because she just hadn't said yeah. anything. yes. Um, and it was like truly bizarre. It wasn't that she'd said anything positive about him. They like were trying to force her off the fence because you couldn't just be a neutral cultural figure. Um, and you know, it's funny. You know, I've, I've got like I've known a lot of musicians over the years. I know uh, a number of big name musicians that are in the closet politically. Basically, it's not right. that they're even like hardcore right wingers. It's just that they can't say anything. We've seen a couple of things recently where um, Alice Cooper. Um, you know, who's a yes. Christian and an interesting guy, um, come out and said something about trans kids. And uh, uh, and then, you know, the guitarist for Kiss came out and said something about trans kids. Um, and people just like lost their minds. Like, you can't be a figure of any cultural significance and have any heterodox opinion. Um, and it didn't used to be the case. In fact, music used to be interesting precisely because you go back to the 60s and 70s. And like I said, you know, these guys weren't always advocating you know, good or wholesome things, but they were definitely not afraid to speak their mind. They were definitely willing to be heterodox. And we just don't have that in music or, frankly, any major cultural um, form anymore. I mean, I think it's gotten so monolithic, you're starting to see things break through, certainly the film industry. Uh, You know, things like Jesus Revolution phenomenon or the Sound of Freedom movie. People are so tired of this sort of monolithic viewpoint that, uh, you know, there's boundaries and stuff breaking out bargains so I'm, I'm hopeful i'm hopeful we have some sort of like nirvana moment in music here again soon because it's just so stayed both in terms of the music in terms of the cultural attitudes everything like i said i don't expect you know whatever breaks through to be something that it has to be something i agree with or you know necessarily even like i just want it to be different i just want it to be something exciting i just want it to be something that forces me to think about things you know differently you know you know the, a new artistic vision that brings us along with them rather than just feeding back these you know miserable you know shallow values back to us we'll have more of this conversation after this so what so tell me give me some names what is the perfect Pop star. Let's not like Bob Dylan. I mean, he's not really a pop star, right? I mean, he that's a different thing. Right. Let's go. Let's move a little more forward. Let's go 80s, 90s, even today. Name me some people who are pop stars or were pop stars. Maybe some of them are dead. Um, But uh, who pop stars who sort of embody that that thing you're talking about, that it's it's both commercial, but it takes us to this other level, forces us to think about things isn't as commercialized and, you know, sort of maybe too accessible and too trite um, right. and, and superficial, as you described, Taylor Swift. So I think the 80s in a lot of ways were kind of the pinnacle of this thing where you had just like absolute master crap. But at the same time, it was so well done that, you know, these were like in a big radio hits. I mean, I saw Peter Gabriel last week. 
Mm. Obviously, Peter Gabriel was, a, you know, the, the cultural phenomenon he once was, but and then at the top of his game in the eighties. I mean, like, yes, he was. Records are incredible. I mean, some of the best musicians on the planet writing radio bits that are incredibly musically sophisticated. There's a lot of, you know, cultural commentary there. You know, he, um, Peter Gabriel, the, you know, the, the, the amazing stuff in terms of apartheid in South Africa, but things like that. And I think causes that well, things that everyone could agree on that were pretty darn worthy. In fact, um, I, when I saw him on Wednesday night, he did a whole thing uh, where part of his concert, the art for it was done by A. Wee Wai, who's this you know, Chinese dissident or whatever. You know, how many pop stars? Uh, um, you know, we've seen this stuff with LeBron James. They want the China market, Mark. They're not going to say anything about Chinese dissidents. Exactly. And Peter Gabriel's in his 70s. He's still standing up for political dissidents fighting, yeah. you know, governments, you know, and, and you know, worthy cause. And that takes, you know, actual courage. And a guy that actually cares yeah. more about his art than you know, how many records he sells. So, you know, that's one example. But, you know, again, all those guys, you know, that Prince, I mean, you know, just absolutely amazing musician who do, you know, mm-hmm. music, you know, a billion different genres for crying out loud. You know, again, I, I didn't always necessarily agree with, you know, Prince's vision in terms of how sexualized or whatever it could be, although, you know, he certainly became, you know, did a Jehovah's Witness later and came down a lot of that stuff. Um, but, um, you know, Sting, you know, again, a lot of his stuff was like super pretentious, but it was really intelligent um, and you know, it was very literate and very interesting. You know, there were there was a time when, when all those things were, you know, really important. And the same thing with like, you know, I, I graduated from the high school in 1994. Said, no you can imagine what that was like. I mean, that whole grunge thing or whatever, it was yeah. really like refreshing, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. how these were a bunch of guys that came out. They're very much this do-it-yourself, you know, ethics. You know, they, um, and they were, you were rejecting a lot of the things that were foisted upon them in terms of consumerism and other things like that in ways that I think were healthy. Of course, you know, heroin and some of the other things. They were, you know, <laughs> Not so healthy. healthy. But there were plenty of values there where if you were a smart, intelligent kid looking to like, well, what can I glean out of this you know, that, you know, I, I, I can actually like affect my life in a positive way. There were things that you could find. Um, I just, with Taylor Swift, you know, like again, like I said, there are some things, you know, if you really want to focus in on her work ethic and some other things, but there's just not a lot of there there in terms of the emotional resonance, in terms of, you know, the, the cultural values. Well, let's talk let's talk about those cultural values. Because you talked about the music and and that part of it, but there that you can't avoid the fact that you you did comment on the fact that she has you know, she's single, she's not married, um, she doesn't have kids, and she has really created sort of this picture of of how great it is. How great it is, exactly. And you also think that's not so great. Yeah, I mean, sure, I do. But I would also add that, like, again, I didn't, you know, mention this. Um, and I, yeah, I believe all those things. You know, I, I, I don't think it's good for, uh, you know, women and men to be drifting into their 30s and variants, especially bad for women. And, you know, certainly that's a big facet of Taylor Swift. And a lot of people look to her, I mean, quite frankly, as a role model. Um, and I don't think that that is you know, very healthy. But it's also true that part of the reason why, you know, I have to comment on this when I'm writing about Taylor Swift is because she just keeps forcing it on us, right? Like every <laughs> song is about this like insane relationship drama with like some celebrity, you know? And you know, she also just doesn't let go of stuff. I mean, apparently there's a song in her latest, you know, album about her in relationship with John Mayer, who she dated 14 years ago. It's like, oh. for crying out loud, move, move on. on. Yeah. Yeah. It must be hard, though, Mark, to be Taylor Swift and and have to date. I'm sorry. In her oh, dating life, it must be. I mean, listen, her life is is totally privileged. She's on I jets. Rich, she's on, I would not want to date her. Yeah. I thought and that if, was really interesting. Like, I you know, 
I think it would be really, would be really hard. It's like yeah. this, this fame, and you can't go to dinner, and everybody wants some of her. I'm like, God, she is a she must be a head case to dating. Good luck with the guy that catches her, and who knows how long that relationship will uh, last or marriage. Good luck to them, but um, I would not want that for myself, Mark. I wouldn't want Taylor Swift for myself. Or <laughs> any of the Swifties as well. She, she's totally going to yoke with the Chiefs, isn't she? Um, <laughs> she's totally what I miss that. <laughs> I said she's totally going to Yoko the Chiefs. Right? Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, look, I, I, there's something to what you're saying, uh, obviously. I mean, I, I, it's not that I have, like, no empathy for the woman. The problem is, is that where the space she occupies culturally it creates this sort of gigantic feedback, right? Yeah. So, like, she gets in these bad relationships, and then she writes songs about those bad relationships that become massive hits. And it's just like, this cyclical thing, like... What is her incentive to like settle down, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> what skill set does she have to write about introspection about like quieter, less dramatic things in life in other moments like that? If I could just, you know, move her on to be sort of a fully formed artist that isn't, you know, dealing in these black and white, you know, petty adolescent emotional dramas. But, but Mark, you did say it is a sign of societal decline. So let's talk, let's for, we can't let you go without you actually addressing that part. Well, again, the article is primarily focused on music, right? Um, so, you know, like I said, you know, Taylor Swift keeps using the same chord changes over and over again. And actually, it's not just Taylor Swift. Like, this is, it, you can go online and check this out. And like in Google, this, there's, you know, you don't know how musically literate you are. There's this thing called, you know, a one, five, six, four chord change, right? And it's just um, insane how many pop songs in the last 20 years ago have been written. It's like saying, you know, sort of ear-pleasing chord change. Um, and, you know, I think the Beatles used that chord change once in their, like, entire catalog or something like that. Mm -hmm. you go back to the 80s and stuff, just the actual sort of, like, melodic variety in terms of, like, what you're encountering. So... I don't know. I mean, to this, think, if you think about, say, you know, music and, and chord changes and other, you know, even the granular stuff, they're, they're designed because they're important because they, they evoke specific emotions, right? And if you have a very sort of like narrow range in terms of like the emotional response you get from music, it's going to spill out in pretty big ways, I think, the double things. And aside from the fact that it just conditions you to accept the same thing over and over again, which is, you know, a metaphor in itself for the horrible political and cultural moment I think we're in, in, right. We're in right now. So yeah, the I homogenized, want... yeah, we're all like the same, it's Starbucks on every corner. I mean, there is something, there, I, 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 the box. I, I fully agree with you on that. She is a phenomenon. Sean, she's going to make, I think, half a billion dollars just on the tour. She has a film coming out of the tour that's going to probably generate another God knows how many millions. See what you talk about in the article as well, Mark. Again, she's a she's a money making machine. I mean that that the business side of this really impressive. But I do think it's important to note. By the way, just quickly, I do have "Shake It Off" on my playlist. I do you love some of her songs? I can't help it. I love it. I you know, she's not writing for us. Let's be clear. She is she is writing for our daughters, and and she's writing, you know, for I, I guess you know, yeah, as sure as the New York Times has embraced her, but. They have their own reasons for doing that. Before, before I let you go, just what I find fascinating is how much money parents and young people are willing to pay to Thank go to you, a Taylor Sean. Swift concert. Have we ever seen anything like this? Is it just because technology now allows this bidding process to happen and so you can get But where are they getting the, the money? Ticket? Or is it Taylor Swift herself? But 
the financial layout that, that, that parents and young people are making Completely. to see this woman in person is it, it's remarkable that this cash is going to her. Well, that's another thing there. You know, we talk about sort of the me generation too. Um, you know, when we were growing up, our parents never in a million years would have thought to oh, show $1,000 for a concert ticket, never. which is what, you know, even nosebleeds were going for. Right. Slip to her. Um, I, you know, and part of that though was, is that, you know, a lot of, most of the concerts I went to were pretty cheap, <laughs> part because they weren't, you know, bands that were on the radio, or if they were, they were barely on the radio, um, you know, but, and, but because of that, I sort of specifically identified with it, you know, it was my music. I had to earn the money to listen to it. I had to, you know, make an effort on my own to like go to the concerts or whatever. Like it wasn't my parents necessarily singing along with, with everything. I mean, music used to have this sort of generational impact, right? Your parents had their yeah. music, you had your music or whatever. And like now, the internet has just kind of broken all of our sense of that in terms of any sort of like cultural evolution. Like everything's just sort of like jumbled up into one thing and everybody's listening to the same thing all the time. And they don't bring this like personal significance or this, you know, their own sort of generational uh, um, um, sense of it to, to music. And I, I think that's just a huge thing. And the idea that parents would be enabling their kids this way. Uh, never. It, it's not just the, the ticket, Mark. Is. It's not just the ticket. They're traveling to other cities. So then they're getting their flights and their hotels. Then there's that. Then there were the people who said they figured out the ticket was actually cheaper in Sweden. So they're flying out to Sweden to see the concert. I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane. I remember my first like really, really big concert that I went to. I was in high school and I was allowed to go see Rattle and Hum at Arizona State University Theater. And it was a big deal because they were, they were, there was going to be helicopters over because they were recording it for, I guess, their movie or video that they were doing. I can't remember at the time, but I went with my brothers. Um, we were up in the nosebleeds. I think it was the first time I ever smelled pot. Um, and of course, and I think that ticket was probably like 35 bucks. Um, and it, I just, I can't, and I, and I remember kind of being a big deal too. Like I, I, you know, I, I just, I can't imagine the phenomena. Um, but it does speak to just how homogenized and sort of, uh, commercialized. E commercialized everything has gotten. And, um, you know, she, she's as big as Elvis, but the talent, I think you're a hundred percent right. It's not the same. Yeah. No, I, I, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, Elvis, again, remember, was a sea change in terms of how people saw things. That's right. Like going from black and white to technical for a lot of people. Yeah. In terms of the influences he was bringing in from, you know, R&B and other things like that. White boy from Memphis getting up there and gyrating and, you know, be, doing uh, balloons. Um, so, the, you know, that was a big thing. You know, Taylor Swift, again, isn't, you know, changing anything. She's just feeding back to us, like, the most base things that we want here. You know, and in that sense, look, I don't have anything necessarily against her. I mean, there have always been sort of shallow pop artists, and that has its place. I mean, it's fun. You know, there were a few Taylor Swift songs, you know, I actually liked um, myself. It's just that what I object to is that she has become just like the person, like the monster that ate pop music. I mean, it's like she's just so unavoidable in like every sphere anymore. And like, that's what I'm protesting against. If Taylor Swift were out there making millions of dollars or whatever, and, you know, another artist or whatever, that's fine. Just do not tell me she is the end-all be-all of American culture, because if that's the case, we are in a very, very bad place. We need real artists um, showing us the way and, you know, making us feel things and, and taking us to different places that we never thought we'd, we'd go. And Taylor Swift is incapable of it. Now, the freedom to say things that are different, 
um, and to speak their mind in a in a free society. That would always be nice. Again, we we did have that as Gen Xers uh, in the eighties. Uh, music we listened to from the seventies had it as well. Uh, Mark Hemingway, listen, I think this is a fascinating conversation. I appreciate. He's a brave man. You took on the Swifties. I, I, and, and he lived to tell. He lived to tell the <laughs> tale because, again, as, as Gen Xers were like the little Swifties, it's like, get away, whatever. <laughs> they're, not, not, they're not in our space. But the article is at the Federalist. It's Taylor Swift's popularity is a sign of societal decline. Mark Hemingway, thank you for joining us. Uh, being a music critic, cultural critic, political critic on the kitchen table. We appreciate that. Thank you, Mark. Great talking to you. Glad to be here. All right. Bye-bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.